Coming up, a Sad Styles production. Hello and welcome. My name is Mikey Aaronworth, signing on to the Sign Off, a Frameworth podcast for yet another week. It is the forum for all the stories you didn't know you wished you knew about the world of sports and sports marketing. I am joined in studio in lovely Toronto, Ontario, Canada, side by side with Brian Aaronworth, president of Frameworth Sports Marketing. Brian, dad, how you doing today? I'm doing fine, Mikey. I just love listening to your intro every week. You always, I can't get over how weirdly nervous you look as soon as I start talking. <laughs> like, like you, you've never, never know me. where you're going with it. That's why. And you don't trust me still after all this time. We've no. been doing this over a year at this point. Hey, how about that? We didn't huh? celebrate our one year anniversary together. I didn't realize that. We should have. We should have. We should mark the occasion with something. Uh, you know what we can mark the occasion with is a uh, fantastic review that one of our listeners left to us recently. Uh, this is one, Dad, that you picked out for a yes. specific reason. And as we always mention at the top of the episode, we read a rating or a review because uh, that always helps us out. Get up the charts uh, in iTunes and the likes. Uh, read some of those five-star reviews and give a little giveaway to the people who leave them. This one is from Jeff Pullum. I've dealt with Frameworth team in person, online, and listened to the Sign Off podcast. It's an absolute gem of a podcast to listen to. The story are amazing, funny, and very insightful. The guys are top-notch to deal with. It's definitely a podcast any sports fan should be listening to. Hearing the owner, Brian, on the show is a fantastic touch. I'm sure he's a busy guy. You know, we talk about that on the podcast as well, uh, but making time to do this with his son, Mikey, is so cool. Keep up the great work, guys. Uh, so you, I think, Dad, wanted to pick this I had one to, out. Because every time I see a review or hear a review, uh-huh. it's always about you. Okay. And, and this one, he mentioned me. There you I go. Said, so we got to give that guy something. I guess we got to give him something. And you know what we're going to give him? We'll give him, uh, how about this? In honor of how well he's been playing in the playoffs so far, let's go with a Mitch Marner signed 8 by 10 eh? Sounds good. He's been playing fantastic. Uh, now, enough of that. First of all, Jeff, thank you for the review. And if you want to put yourself up to p- potentially receive a free signed 8 by 10 photo from one of our players, uh, all you have to do is leave the rating and review. We pick them at random. And apparently, if you pump my dad's tires enough, he'll pick you <laughs> not at random. It'll be explicitly chosen. Uh, but we got someone waiting in the wings who I can't wait to bring on here. Our guest this week can be credited with bringing a once stale image of the good old hockey player uh, and thrusting it into the public just in time for New York's disco era. With his help, hockey players began being looked at as rock stars and icons along with movie stars and musicians. But along the way, he was also able to firmly cement himself as one of the New York Rangers top 50 players of all time, had a storied 12-year NHL season career, which led to a life of analyzing, broadcasting, and podcasting about the sport we all love. He's an ambassador for the image of the game, and he's here today to tell us his story. Ladies and gentlemen, Ron Duguay. Well, hi. Good to be with you. Thanks for that nice intro. No problem. Uh, Yeah, you pretty much covered it at all. (laughs) Pretty much covered (laughs) it all. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah, I I don't think there are any other stories. That's it, top to bottom. I can't imagine there's anything else to peel back the curtains on there. Uh, I didn't mention it in the intro, but you are also the host of Up in the Blue Seats, a podcast specific to New York, the New York Rangers. Um, How did you get involved in in that podcast? Has that been uh, something that you kind of expected? I mean, obviously being an analyst for a while, but now you're sort of in, in this realm. How are you finding it? I'm I'm enjoying it um, because I've been on the other side of it to host something. Mm-hmm. I I think that it's something that I um, I've always wanted to do because I was on the other side of just having to answer questions. I did MSG for uh, television for 12 years, answering questions as an analyst, and and to be the host. I've always felt like being a host might be uh, you're juggling a lot of stuff, yeah. right? But once I got comfortable with it, I I enjoy it because I get to talk to um, what has been a long long time friend, Larry Brooks, who works for the New York Post. Mm-hmm. He's their um, he's their beat writer, and so I've known him forever. So him and I speak the same language, and that's when something works when you can speak hockey, talk hockey, or talk whatever, and you can banter with someone who gets you right, who understands you. And Larry, uh, he gets it. And so also we, we've added Molly Walker, a young woman who's new to the game, new to the uh, New York Post. And so she makes, uh, she makes it fun where it's a different perspective, a woman's per- perspective. Mm-hmm. So I enjoy doing the show. And I always joke around how when I think about the New York Post, I've had a long relationship with the New York Post because it's not just – the New York Post is not just sports pages. Right. But – there's the news and there's there's the gossip mm-hmm. and there's Familiar this thing called page six in New York Post and I was um, back in the day <laughs> I made the page six very very often <laughs> and they would it's not like they 
they had a lot of eyes on us back then because we can secretly do things. But occasionally someone would see me walking out of Studio 54 Mm -hmm. and someone would get to page six and make a mention. So um, Herb Brooks wasn't a he wasn't really fond of my nightlife. Herb Brooks being the coach and of New York. He would have time, to yeah. read about me. And the worst time he'd read about me is when I'd have a bad game. <laughs> so um, so the New York Post is partially responsible for uncovering my uh, bad doings late at night. Yeah. And it's funny how uh, years later, here I, here I am working for the New York Post because I was really bitter for, with them. Did, so now I'm working for them. I do their podcast. And well, I love you're so it. much better behaved now. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> no, I'm I'm going to be 65. I'm still very immature for my age. <laughs> did you, uh, Ron? Did you have any uh, any issues you had to clear up with Larry as the beat reporter, who I'm assuming would have had to write some negative things about anyone on the team at certain points? Was there any anything that ever kind of stuck with you that he had said about you that you had to clear up before partnering up with him? No, not at all. Because Larry's a pretty honest guy, and he gives it to you when you're not playing well he also will compliment you when you're doing well and so I love his honesty and he didn't I don't think he really had uh any kind of favoritism towards anyone Mm -hmm. and you probably have seen this before when Larry Larry uh not Larry Tortorisi but um uh, Larry Brooks not Larry Brooks but uh, John John Tortorella there you go was coach. Yes. Those two had battles. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. And because Herb would would not be intimidated by anyone. I mean, uh, Larry wouldn't be intimidated by anyone. So I love his honesty. Do you find it weird being on the other side of this now? I mean, you do, you, do as as someone who's kind of analyzing, you've been doing analyzing for, for a while, but now as the host, you are kind of the face about what gets said on your podcast. You've also played the sport and you know that these are real human beings you're talking about. Some reporters, I honestly believe, don't fully grasp the fact that they're talking about other humans with personalities and, and emotions and feelings. Do you ever find yourself pulling punches or do you just kind of have to lean into it as someone who's analyzing the game that sometimes feelings are going to get hurt? Well, I, I got to tell you, that's a good question. I've never been asked that question. And that's one of the things that I would say, the fact that I've been a player and I've been a coach. I coached four years on the minor mm-hmm. league level. So I know what it's like to be a, a player going through stuff. When things are good, things are great. Right. When things are bad, it doesn't feel good. And the last thing you want is people to dump on you. Um, and as a coach, I know the weight of being a coach, right. wins and losses. It's much different than being a player. And so like I've, I've like Gerard Gallant in New York. Um, I, uh, I, you know, I, I know him as a man, as a person and, uh, and I see him as a coach now, so I can relate to all that. So yeah, I'm careful and cautious. Mm-hmm. I try to be as honest as possible. You want to be credible. Yeah. Um, and so I will speak my mind, but I do, I am aware of, 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 um, not, uh, going for the juggler and especially, you know, with certain players, what bothers me more than anything else, when I look at, at uh, different athletes, it's the work ethic. Mm-hmm. If the work ethic is there and you're not playing well, I'm okay with that. Yeah. Right. If you're doing your best, I'm okay with that. But it, it, when I see when, when players aren't being uh, the best that they can be, then that's when I'll be a little more critical. I think that's fair. And I think I think that's kind of how you earn the respect of the player, because I'm sure there were some people writing about you that would say things that you knew resonated because they were true. Oh, maybe I did pull up a little bit here or this and that, but it's never a cheap shot. And I think walking that line is probably how you maintain the respect of the players that you're talking about. Now, drafted 13th overall in 19, uh, 1977 by the Rangers. Uh, you were also, though, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, drafted in 76 by the Jets in the WHA uh, entry draft. Is that is that true? Is that is that true? No, it was the same year. Oh, it was the same year. Because, but you uh, decided yeah, to go I, NHL? Yeah, because that year they were not accepting underage players. I would have been mm-hmm. drafted as an underage in the WHA, but they changed the ruling. They went from 18 to 19. Right. So in 77, I was drafted both by the New York Rangers in the first round, 13th overall, and then fourth overall in the WHA by the Winnipeg Jets. And uh, Eddie Mio, who we had on the podcast, a friend of yours, and I, I can't wait to get into some of the stories that you two would have shared in, in New York, but he spent some time uh, in the WHA prior to making it to the NHL as well. Was that ever a consideration from you going to the WHA first? It's funny. I'll share with people the conversation I had with my agent, mm-hmm. and it was Al Eagleson. Okay. okay. Uh, and it wasn't Al. It was Bill Waters. Okay. Bill Waters, yep. I believe, that well. uh, was his 
one of his guys that worked for him. And I got the call the one morning. It was a Saturday morning after the – it would have been a Saturday. It was been Saturday afternoon after the draft. He just gave me a call say, hey, Ron, good news, drafted by the Rangers, also by Winnipeg. I've already negotiated your contract. Oh, Already wow. negotiated your contract. It wasn't, hey, what do you think? What are your thoughts? He said, basically, this is what you're making. You got a four-year deal, three-year and an option, uh, $100,000 signing bonus, 75, 80, 85, and um, we'll get you to New York in about 30 days. Any questions? <laughs> and I was hung over that morning, I can remember. <laughs> I said, um, no, no questions. All sounds good to me. And I remember going upstairs, talked to mom and dad. Hey, here's the deal. Went back to bed, went, fell asleep, and uh, then negotiated a time to go to New York. But there was no conversation about salary, how much money I would like to make. Nothing. Wow. It had already been negotiated. Now, was any of this owing to the fact that uh, uh, Waters was was Waters associated with Eagleson at the time? Because I know that that was basically just a, a factory of of employment contracts, agency, all that. Is that just owing to the fact that hey, it's draft time? We got a ton of contracts to negotiate. I don't really care what you have to say because I'm the only option you have. Here's the contract. Take it or leave it. No, I think it was a relationship that Eagleson had with the owners. Oh, was to me it was a conflict. Yeah. Oh yeah. no, for the PA. Yeah. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Al, Bill Waters worked for Al. Mm -hmm. And uh, no, I think it was that kind of relationship they had back then. Right. You know, they were controlling salary. Right. And that's how they did it. Yeah. Now and it's so for me, I mean, I, I, I had no idea what kind of money I would even be making. It wasn't even that much of a thought. I don't even remember thinking, well, I'm going to make X amount of dollars. Well, you're so happy. To me, it was just, am I, am I getting drafted in the NHL? And more than likely, I'll be in the first round. I wasn't, I don't remember thinking what kind of money I was going to make. You have a lot of trust in the agent and, and uh, you know, you're excited about getting into the NHL. So you just kind of leave it to them. And I think that's what happened with a lot of those Eagleson uh, sure. kind of deals. Yeah. And uh, another yeah. thing, you know, you're, you're, you mentioned the, the day that you found out about the contract having been negotiated uh, without your input, you, you may have been a little bit hung over there. So I'm sure there was uh, some partying in you prying, prior to making it to the league, but going to New York and finding out you're going to be spending some time in New York, you eventually started to develop a reputation off the ice as well. Uh, in kind of the heyday for hockey in New York at this time, the opening of Studio 54, finding out that that's where you're going. Did you immediately put two and two together and think my life is about to get amazing over the next couple of years or, or were you planning or hoping to go somewhere else or what were you thinking? No, none of that. Mm. I, I'm telling you, I really didn't think a whole lot of what team I wanted to go through to. I thought maybe Toronto, maybe sure. a Canadian team because I was a, uh, I love the Leafs. I wasn't a big Montreal Canadian mm -hmm. fan because it was too easy. They were winning cups. Right. That was too easy. Right. I love the Leafs. But I, I had little knowledge about New York, nothing about New York City. I hadn't even been on a plane before. I'm from Sudbury, Ontario. Right. Hadn't even been on a plane. I had no idea what I was going to get involved in. Didn't know much about Madison Square Garden or the Rangers. And so by the time I got there, I can remember getting there. Oh, here's one thing. Um, the one thing I knew, the one player that was there was Phil Esposito. Yes. And um, Phil... Espo left um, in a lot of us an impression on what leadership looked mm -hmm. like in 1972, which this year will be the right. 50th anniversary of the Summit Series. Yep. And so Espo, I'll never forget that day on the game that they, they got beat in Vancouver. And uh, Espo had his words to say before they went to Russia. I think they were down three games to one. And he essentially called out the fans for booing them. Mm. And said, listen, well, I'm not happy, but we're going to go to Russia and we're going to win this thing. Yeah. I'm like, wow. Then he goes over there and he dominates and they end up winning the series. So having said all that, I was 14 years old mm -hmm. thinking about wanting to play in the NHL. So I knew what it's like to be a player and play the game. But to see what leadership looked like, Phil Esposito, what a man. And then here I am. I go to New York. I go to the Ranger office. And the first man to greet me were two guys. Phil Esposito and Rod Gilbert. Wow. And so that was a big, big wow to me. And so those first couple days were, um, then there was a couple of younger players on the team. So I got to visit New York a little bit, but to be surrounded by those guys, 
I mean, I can remember going back home. There was a couple more, a couple months left, and I went back. And I mean, I train hard. I'm going to make this team. I know I'm going to like it. Mm-hmm. So that was a good intro to being in New York, Madison Square Garden, New York Ranger, the jersey, and all of that. And I didn't, I really didn't understand the power and the strength of that jersey in playing in New York. Now, how long did it take you then to develop your confidence? I mean, a, a solid rookie season, 20 goals, I believe. Uh, you, you just kept going up from there. Uh, when did you develop that sense of confidence and start to uh, realize that maybe that page six in the New York Post was was had its eyes on you? Did that take some time or was it kind of off to the races as soon as you got there? Well, as, as far as confidence, yeah. oh, I was going to make that team. Mm. I mean, I stepped on the ice and I'm going because I had the size and the strength, right? the speed that I knew that I can be noticeable on the ice. And I, I knew I had the work ethic and I went in to uh, I went into New York with a lot of confidence because of I'd been scoring goals. I, you know, I knew I can do it. So that wasn't an issue. Plus, I was in great shape. So there was nothing that was going to stop me. And I've always had this sense in me of hockey's not. It's a game that's being played, but when you play it in front of an audience, mm-hmm. there's an entertainment value to it. Right now, we would play in front of three to five thousand people, and you can feel it, you can sense it, and you can play off of it. So by the time I got to New York, all of a sudden, I'm playing in front of nineteen, twenty thousand people. I stepped on the ice. For me, it wasn't just playing hockey. I wanted to, I, I wanted to be noticeable on the ice. Sure. So I knew what to do, and you know, speed, size get physical. And it was instant. Of course, I had the big hair. Yeah, of yeah. course you did. And no helmet. That was the first thing. I'm like, I don't have to wear a helmet. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, because you go to practice and the guys aren't wearing helmets. And I, oh, that's right. I don't have to wear a helmet. And so I just love, I felt so free playing without a helmet. And then that first time I stepped on the ice, I went hundred miles an hour. I didn't, I don't know if I did a whole lot, I was noticeable on the ice. And as soon as I hit a couple of guys, you can feel the energy yeah. and the response. And then within a couple of games, people are chanting my name. Oh, wow. That's all I needed. Okay. And so then I picture, just had yeah. to relax. I had to relax, stay calm, play hard, and still be able to perform. I think I scored my first goal in the fourth game. And, um, and because I was... You know, playing hard. I got quality ice time. I had, I think, uh, Walt Kachuk and Steve Vickers were my line mates. Mm-hmm. And so I, I worked hard. I got rewarded for it. The fans appreciated me. And then, of course, uh, Studio 54 had just opened up <laughs> in April of that year. And uh, I think it was Rod Gilbert that invited me to go. No, I hadn't seen anything like that in Sudbury. I mean, we have our pubs. <laughs> we have our pubs in our bars in New York and, and that in itself, you can have your fun and get in a little bit of trouble. But once you get to New York and you have this massive club mm-hmm. with a lot of uh, different characters sure. in there, um, you uh, either you're going to be afraid and not like it or you're going to love it. And I, I love the, I love dancing. So I love the big dance floor. I love the music. So, I mean, I was just, I, I, I love the entertainment side of it, being in studio. I think I think that is one of the elements that you bring to the game. I mean, obviously, your career speaks for itself, but but that marketing aspect of it, like, look, we're a marketing company. We we understand image. Image is, is kind of everything, you know? Image, not just physically, you know, you got the flow, you've got no helmet, the image of what you look like is one thing, but it's also the image and the perception of the league and of the team. Um, so let's talk a little bit. You mentioned the hair and, and the flow. You've only ever had to wear a helmet professionally for one season, and it was in Germany, when you played in Germany. You couldn't sign a waiver. They forced you to wear the Jofa helmet for a little bit, and you you didn't last more than a season there. How much of that has to do with the helmet? Is it, tell me, tell me that was everything. No, it had nothing to do with it. In fact, <laughs> in fact, I felt I was okay with it because I, I was like in another world. Yeah, I yeah, was in yeah. Germany. They don't really know me there. Sure. But the, you know what the helmet did to me? I remember putting the helmet on and going into the corners. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize how much of awareness you have with not wearing a helmet that you have an awareness that you're not wearing a helmet. Oh, right. Once I put the helmet on, I mean, I was going 100 miles an hour, almost with my head down, thinking my head's protected. Right, right. And so I went into those corners fearless. Yes. yes. 
Um, and it, it felt different. I kind of liked the feeling, although it was a, still a Gretzky uh, the Jaffa, Jaffa helmet. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it still, I, I felt like um, I I can understand why players wore helmets. Well, it didn't. That that feeling didn't do enough to get you to wear the helmet uh, when you came back to play in two thousand eight, two thousand nine for the Brooklyn Aces. You played two professional games, and this this actually, I don't know if you knew this, Dad. The tenth last player. To wear uh, to to uh, refrain from wearing a helmet in the NHL was wrong. The tenth oh, really? tenth last player, and in terms of professional hockey, you are credited with being the last professional hockey player to play a game without wearing a helmet because you signed a waiver before the two thousand eight two thousand nine games with the Brooklyn Aces and played without a helmet. Is that uh, is that something that's a little bit of a point of pride for you? You still had the flow showing uh, uh, in in two thousand nine <laughs> post your NHL career. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I still play. I do a lot of events. I still play without a helmet. Mm-hmm. I and I don't. I don't realize when I step on the ice and everybody's kind of looking at me like, "Aren't you going to wear a helmet?" The game's about to start. And I'm like, "No, I play without a helmet." And <laughs> have you seen so this I hair? Of course, I'm not putting a helmet on. Are you kidding me? Come on. <laughs> yeah, long or short, but now it's just it's it's a comfort thing. Uh, I, I can I can only explain it this way. And, and if you go, if you talk to a guy who likes riding a motorcycle, sure. without a helmet. I would never do that. Right. I would never do that. Or a guy who likes a convertible, but really riding a motorcycle with a helmet. Would you do that? No, I wouldn't do that. But those guys, they don't think about getting hurt. And it's the same thing with me. And they love the feeling. Yes. It's the same thing. When I step on the ice, I love playing hockey without a helmet. It's like pond hockey in the summertime. Sure. And so um, I don't, listen, it's not something I recommend. Yeah. I don't. I like my kids. Wear helmets. They wear everything. The cage, they wear everything. Because I know that you can get hurt, but I don't think about getting hurt. Every time I play, I don't think about getting hurt. It's one of the reasons why I didn't get hurt much when I played. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you had that You had that injury in 1980, uh, speaking of of getting hurt. Uh, Achilles, your Achilles got cut in, in 1980. Uh, pretty significant recovery process from there. Uh, maybe some people thinking you may not have been able to come back, but you played in, in 1981 for Canada, and you had 40 goals just past that. So there was still a lot there it, it's kind of past the uh, 81 season where things sort of started to take a turn and this is all sort of public knowledge I'm curious because you you talk about coming to New York and recognizing Studio 54 is opening up you got 18,000 fans in the stand you like to be noticed you want there to be image not just as a hockey player but as as an icon and that seems to be a sentiment that's shared with the president of the Rangers at the time Sonny Werblin who probably loved having you on the team because he's trying to make hockey players icons in direct contrast to another name you brought up, which is Herb Brooks. So in one angel and devil on your shoulder type scenario, you have one guy who's telling you, go out there, party, be an icon. And the other guy who's saying, keep it, keep it under lock, keep it, you know, tight in, and, and, and come play your game. Don't, don't party too much. How did you balance those two uh, uh, dictations from two different sources? Did that, is that one of the reasons why you found trouble uh, a little bit later towards the, the uh, middle of the 80s? The 80s? Well, the thing is, I wasn't really a trouble guy, mm-hmm. and it, I mean, it it looked worse than what it was. Sure. Sure. Um, and I think with Herb Brooks, I think he needed he needs to make an adjustment to the NHL, where he had just left um, winning that gold medal. But really, the way he won is he controlled these kids, right? 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 They were boys, and so he was the man. And all of a sudden, you leave college hockey. Now you're playing the NHL. And now you have men with families, with kids, with wives. Yes. And then you have me. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, my celebrity status was quite high at that point. But I was not. A, and I worked hard for him. In fact, when I think about uh, when I went, when he came in, I had just finished playing for uh, Team Canada, Canada Cup. Right. And so I had up in training camp. I missed training. I showed up there, and he gave me Mark Pavlich. We had a good conversation. I scored 40 goals. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, everything's good, right? Of course. But um, for him, I think it just kind of bothered him. And I, you know, we never had that conversation where, um, you know, where he'd come to me man to man and say, hey, Ron, can you kind of tone it down or this or that? There was none of that. It wasn't until my second year where he saw, um, I showed up to training camp. I did show up to training camp a little out of shape. But he saw that immediately and he got on my case right away. Instead of um, understanding that I'm a hardworking guy, played well, scored 40 goals, kind of be behind me and support me and just have a talk. He never had a talk. It just bothered him. He'd bring me in occasionally in his um, coach's room 
And I'd be thinking, okay, we're going to talk power play, penalty kill. He's got the newspaper out. And right. He points to, yeah, here, what's this, Ron? Last <laughs> night you were would share. Yeah. And he's basically telling, listen, I, I need you out of page six. I need you more in the sports page. And, I said, <laughs> and that would be it. I said, okay. But going back to Sonny Warblin. Yeah. So imagine Sonny. I don't know what you know, if you know the background of Sonny, but Sonny had Joe Namath. Oh, okay. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, so he had Joe Namath. And when he when he had Joe Namath, he essentially told Joe, listen, Joe, I want you to be you. I knew your skill, but I also want you to be out there, mm-hmm. be seen, and um, be likable, be seen, go have your fun, but still show up and play. Right. If you can do both, that'd be awesome. Perfect. And so now he has me <laughs> and essentially tells me the same thing. And I told him, well, okay, I think I can do that. I'll do my best. (laughs) (laughs) I guess if I have to go to Studio 54, I'll do it. But yeah. Yeah. So he understand because he came from the entertainment business. Right. So he wants you to perform as an athlete, but be visible. Be out there. Be visible. I had the big fur coat. Joe had the big fur coat. Mm -hmm. Big hair, big hair. I didn't have the mustache, but I did everything else. It's funny because years later, I've run into Joe. Mm-hmm. I've done some of his events. And so we were able to chat a little bit about all that. And so we do have a few things in common, Joe and I. I think that's probably why a lot of the college coaches can't make it to the pros because they're, the difference between kids that they can sure. control and, sure. and adults with, with uh, their own lives is is a tough transition. So that probably makes sense. Do you, do you think that Herb kind of saw you as the exception to the rule that proved his formula false in some ways. Like he thought that you had to control in a certain way and he had some animosity for the fact that you could do both. He's probably out there dictating that you can't and, and there you are doing it. You know, I don't know because I know I wasn't a bad guy. Yeah. I know I was liked by my teammates. I always worked hard. So I wish that's one of my big regrets today because her passed away, the car accident. Right. I never had a chance to talk to him. The only time I had a chance to talk to him, he called me. After I was released by the um, by the Kings, and it looked like my career was coming to an end, I'm at home, and you know I'm a little down and out. I want to still play, and the phone rings, you know, landline. I pick <laughs> up the phone, and it's Herb Brooks. And Herb said, "Hi, it's Herb," and I'm like, I remember, I didn't know what to say. I said, "Hi." He goes, uh, "I just want to say to you, I think you had a good career. Keep your head up. You should be proud of yourself." And I didn't know what to say to him. Yeah. I, I, I guess I wasn't in the right mood. I would have liked to have had a longer talk with him. Thank you very much. Chat this or that. And even ask him, what was the problem? Why right. did you trade me? Right. Yeah. But yeah. I never did have that conversation with him. But but that to me was him saying to me that I think he felt bad having traded me. Because I go to Detroit for three years, I average a point a game. Right. Yeah. And I did pull myself together. I did. Uh, get married, I had kids, and I did, you know, it's Detroit. So what are you going to do in Detroit, right? <laughs> There's a Studio Zero in Detroit. <laughs> so, um, but Eddie Mio was there. There you go. There you go. Keep, keep Eddie, company. Eddie was so, Eddie Mio was so freaking angry getting traded to Detroit because he loved it in New York. And he felt like, uh, you know, he's thrown in part of the package, right? Right. And had I not been traded, he probably wouldn't have been traded. So he ended up back in Detroit, which he didn't like. Eddie Shack used to tell the story about how he made it to Toronto only because Red Kelly refused to trade too. And speaking of that, Eddie's favorite line, I don't know that oh, you heard it. There you go, yeah. I, I say this from time to time because it comes up whenever somebody's from Sudbury. But Eddie used to say, you know, only hockey players and hookers come from Sudbury. Which team did your mother play for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was, Eddie would use that every time you saw him. He'd say that. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I, 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 I want to get into uh, some of the uh, the stories Eddie Mio shared, you know, give you a chance to kind of reply to some of those as well. Uh, before we kind of get directly into that era, uh, you know, you're coming into New York, as we mentioned, and, and you are really kind of bringing this this uh, uh, celebrity lifestyle to the realm of hockey. Were, were there any players, you know, you mentioned Esposito on, on New York, who's bringing this kind of class uh, that that clearly rubbed off on you as well, but then you also have this other side. Were there players like when you get a a, a Sasson jeans commercial, are they looking at you like, what are you doing? This is hockey. Why are you modeling jeans? Or or were people just kind of willing to hang on to your coattails and and get to their own celebrity status as a as a result? 
I, um, as far as teammates, I didn't feel like there was any kind of jealousy. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we all kind of understand. The one thing we do understand that we're all different and we all get paid different. Right. That's the one thing. Like if you have a Gretzky or Lemieux on your team, you know they're making three, four times more than you. Right. But a lot more is expected. And you're paid according to your value to the team. And some guys get, you know, a little more than the others. So that I don't think that's ever been an issue, really. Mm -hmm. I've never felt that kind of jealousy uh, with teammates, I never really felt it from uh, playing against guys. Yeah, did they I, ever it, use it, it against wouldn't. you? Like, did anyone, did everyone, anyone, hey, hey, the gene model over there scoring goals? No, no, it, no, no. No, it would be fans. It would be like, I'd go to Philadelphia and be, ooh, la, la, Sassoon. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, oh, yeah, I'd hear all that. And then I'd have people whistle at, whistling at me like I'm a woman crossing the street. <laughs> Yeah. So listen, I, I've taken I've taken uh, um, physical. I don't want to say physical beatings, but I've had a lot of players come after me, especially in Philadelphia and Boston. Yeah. But also, it's more the mental abuse from the fans. There yeah. you go. Now you mentioned uh, that that infamous song "Ula La Sassoon." Uh, Ula La was also the group name that put out the song "Hockey Sock Rock." Technically, that was the group name of it, uh, which you were a part of. A song written by Alan Thicke. Do you know this song, Dad? No. Hockey Sock Rock. No. Uh, early in your NHL career, you took part. In, in this song that's kind of become a little bit of, of legend. Is this something that you have you, when was the last time you saw this music video? Um, occasionally they'll, someone will send it to me on uh, Facebook. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. 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 Uh, and the, so, uh, and I, it's funny that you bring this up because I would, I would love to do it again. Like I've asked Espo, I said, Espo, would you be up for doing the new version? Oh, amazing. Today's version, because we're all, let me see. We're all still alive. Yep. Espo, you uh, give Alan Espo, would be the, you give the Espo a little yeah, bit yeah. of vodka and he'll be good to go to sing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it'd be fun to do it in today's high tech stuff because I think it would be a hit. I think so. I would love to see you read. I mean, this I'm is- going to try and arrange that because I'm pretty friendly with Espo too. So I'll, I'll try and put that together oh. behind the scenes. Yeah, I, let, no, let's please. Be a part of it. Yeah. No, please. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. I'm serious too. Are you kidding me? I'm a marketing <laughs> yeah. guy. We can make this happen. Yeah, Espo will do it. Cause we got we have we have JD. JD will do it. We got Dave Maloney, uh, Pat Hickey, um, all those guys. They would all love to uh get in the studio, do it with a different version. Here's the other thing. I would do this, I would do it. Um, get a couple of um musicians like in top bands. Sure. Like the saxophone player for Billy Joel. There you go. There you go. Um, I know him. We get. I get the drummer. I know the drummer from um, the Ramones. Oh hell yeah, Mickey Ramone. I know him. I'll get him to come and do some drums. So we can really do this in a fun way. Okay. I, I love this idea because I mean, there's. I I can almost guarantee that sometimes when people are sending you these videos, they're they're doing it almost to be like, oh hey, look at this thing you did. But you commit to it with this level of that that transcends the ability for anyone to poke fun. You're having fun with it. So what can anyone yes. say to say you 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 lent yourself to it like an actor in a role that that just goes for it. You can never blame the actor for just going for it. And this is the case. Now, I, I rewatched the video prior to this interview as well um, uh, with Esposito singing. You're... Are you in the video? There, there's, there's the one that I saw. It was really grainy. I couldn't tell who was who, but there was one person in a referee's uniform with a bag on his head, and then two other people in there because of the. That was the sec. That, that was the second version of. Okay, it. okay, okay. So were you were the, the you one in version that one? is uh, we're all we're we're um, all next to each other and we're pretending we're playing instruments. Yes. Um, and I got a purple jacket satin, on the purple, purple satin, satin jacket, jacket yeah. on. Uh, that's the one that we end up recording that at the uh, Sky Rink Arena in Manhattan. We did that there. So, um, yeah, there's two different versions of it. It's uh, it's it's fantastic to go back to, and and you keep seeing like you know you 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 Google it, and there's just articles all over the place of people who can't help but just bringing that video back up into prominence, which is great. I would love to see a remake of it. Uh, so, let's, Brian, yeah, what we do is we find. You know, because we did it for uh, um, diabetes, I believe. So we'll we'll do it as a cause for something, and I Gotta don't know what the cause. cause would be. Sure, we'll do a fundraiser. But even like if we had a lead singer like Bon Jovi to come in and kind of sing along with Espo, or one starts it and the other one finishes, I don't know something like that. But some big time musicians would love to do it. That's fantastic. Well, we, I love the idea. 
Yeah, I, I think I've got some contacts in the music world as as well because we do we uh, we do all the marketing for Russian, the Tragically Hip, and we've got uh, um, Glass Tiger. The, so the, we'll, we'll, I'm going to mull this over, and I'm going to get back thing to you is, on that. The listeners probably think, Dad, that you're joking, but they not, don't not know your all. dog with a bone mentality. You won't sleep tonight because you're going to be thinking about who to bring into this. Uh, yeah. You didn't you, sleep. You know, let me add one more guy yeah. who loves hockey. Who's a friend of mine, Cuba Gooding. Oh, there you go. I we well, he was at the Gretzky camp. We were on the ice with him. Right. He yeah. loves yeah. hockey for sure. Yeah, yeah and Cuba can sing. Okay. Uh, so I, I all this down. I mentioned uh, uh, the sleepless night my dad's going to have planning for uh, uh, how to bring the gang back together for this remake. You, uh, uh, Ron, as we mentioned, and Eddie Mio likely would have had uh, several sleepless nights over in New York. Uh, we keep bringing up the the opening of, of Studio 54. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about your time with Eddie Mio specifically, who was on the podcast and told some stories uh, about you. Now, he prefaced these stories with a... And a, a belief that you had come to him at one point because you were being interviewed about a book that was coming out and you needed help recollecting some of the stories and some of the memories that you would have had in New York. Uh, is that a little bit of an embellishment on behalf of Eddie or was your memory kind of okay of, of those moments? Well, yeah, because I didn't wear a helmet, there's a lot of things I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's yeah, good. no, it's 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 funny how some guys remember everything. Right, right. And for me, I just remember things that are really, really, really important to me. Sure. All the small details, I, it just kind of in and out of my brain. And so I would have to call. I would call Eddie. I said, Eddie, Eddie, do you remember this? You remember that? Where he'll bring things up. And I said, wow, I don't remember that. And so at one point I was thinking about writing a book and I thought, Eddie, I might need your help here. And you he would have been the perfect guy because at one point, he, every time I would go somewhere and I didn't want to be stuck in a uh, possible date situation where I couldn't get out of it. I said, right. Eddie, come with me. Right. If things are good, I, I'm going to give you the thumbs out. <laughs> if things are not, <laughs> then I'm going to use you as an excuse. So, and so Eddie would always come in and he'd sit there and he'd kind of look at me. Am I leaving? Am I going? What am I doing? <laughs> that's, I'm sure he's told you a few of those stories. He told us He told us a couple. He told us about the night uh, where, you, where you took uh, Eddie to go see one of your favorite plays, Burning Bed with Farrah Fawcett was one of them. Another night with Bianca Jagger. Stories I know he also told uh, on, on your podcast as well. But his recollection of those moments, you know, let's test your memory on this, is that, yes, you did bring him along. And I, I, I'm assuming it was for that reason of potentially needing something to bail to pull the shoot if things went, went, went south. But Eddie's recollection is that he did all the talking in both of those scenarios until you were ready. And then you said, Eddie, it's time to go. I'll take it from here. Is that how it happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think he's exaggerating at that point because I could speak for myself. And, uh, and for me to go from A to B, I had to say something, right? I had to convince him that I could speak. So, uh, no, Eddie would be there. Eddie's a charmer is a nice guy. Um, and, but he would be there as my, as nice company. And, uh, but I would, I would throw him a bone occasionally though. One time he, cause he was very fond of Cheryl Tiggs. Okay. And Who so I, he, he said, boy, would I love to take out Cheryl Tiggs? So I said, you do? I said, okay, I'll call Cheryl. And so I said, Cheryl, do me a favor, just go up for dinner with, with, with Eddie one night. And sure enough, um, Cheryl Tiggs went out with Eddie. And next thing you know, he falls in love with her. And <laughs> now he's like a little puppy following her around all over Manhattan. Eddie's yeah, got to come it, back it got on ugly. Now. It got ugly. Oh. Well, if people aren't familiar with with your story, uh, uh, Eddie also told a, a little bit of a, a story about uh, someone following you around a little bit in in the form of Cher. Uh, are you able to go into your uh, your relationships or your experiences with Cher? How uh, she kind of went from hunting you down to banning you from a venue? Is that is that are you remembering that the same way as well? Well, because she's still alive, I'm going to plead the fifth. There you go. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I was around her. I met her at Studio 54. In fact, I met her through Liza Minnelli, who mm. I had just met at Studio 54. Liza Minnelli called me over. She wanted to meet me. We chatted. Then she introduced me to Cher. We danced a little bit. And um, so I was around her some. I don't think Eddie was there that night, in fact. I don't. He may or may not. I don't think he was there. So, yeah, I was around Cher. And she was in the city. I think she had just moved there because she was 
part of a Broadway. She might have been part of a Broadway play. So mm -hmm. it was, she was going to be there for a while. And um, and so I didn't want to be boxed in, let's say. Sure. And so I even just by share, to feel even like, by share. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. So part of what Eddie said is true. Okay. Now, I mean, we could sit here and, and talk about these. I mean, there, it's just story after story and name after name. It just feels like that was an era of hockey that's kind of from a bygone era. Like how how much more often do you hear people talking about this stuff with the number of cameras out there? It's not hitting page six. It's hitting Twitter the moment that it happens. So it almost feels like this had to have happened at, at a certain era. But you still have all these stories kind of tucked away in you. You mentioned you were thinking about writing a book. I don't believe that came to fruition. Is that still in the cards for you, though? Well, the thing for, for me to write a book, because there's a lot of hockey books out there and it's um, I don't think there's a, um, a there's a big need for hockey books. And so for me to do a book that would be a big seller, I would have to name names and right. details. And I'm not a kiss and tell type of guy. I really not. And right. so th once I started to get into it, I thought, you know, what? I don't know if I really want to do this. So. Um, I came up with the idea or my agent did say, what if we did something based off your life? Mm. Because when you think about the 70s and 80s, all that was going on in New York City and Manhattan, um, when you look at what was happening with the mafia, with the police right, and Studio 54 and all the characters of Studio 54, then you got this guy from Subway ends up being in the middle of all that. And I was oh in the God. middle of all that. Yeah. And so there's a lot of stuff there that we can possibly do something based off my life. A novel. Uh and it would make an unbelievable Netflix movie too. Yeah. Okay. Can you can you work on that because that's what I'm thinking. That's well. Okay. So we just signed a, uh, a deal with the Danbury Trashers. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they yes. did. A, yeah. So we're working with all the memorabilia from that uh, from that team. But I've been talking to AJ Gallant, and uh, and we're going. I mean, this guy's a promoter too. So there's lots of, and he's got all the contacts. But I I'm loving what I'm hearing. Like I'm I'm. Uh, rethinking and, and revisiting all those times. Cause I was in that era too. I tried yeah. to get into, <laughs> I wish I knew you that I tried to get into studio 54, but I didn't have the look and I wasn't dressed up in a costume. So I wasn't getting in and I wasn't waiting three hours in line. So I wish I yeah. knew you back then. <laughs> yeah. So, so the idea is what you just said. It's something that would be like a, um, you know, you can create a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, because a lot going on seventies and eighties, but it would be built off my life, and some of it there would be some truth, but then you build characters in there, and uh, you know I'd be a like a Broadway play writer. Those those writers can mm -hmm. build something and write something, so that would be my next thing. I just haven't gotten there. I think I need someone to push me to do it, but there's there a go. lot of material, and we would use Eddie Mio. I was going to say, use Eddie Mio for sure. Well, how about this? Give us a story about Eddie Mio that he's going to have to uh, answer to because he 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 was it was open range when he was on the podcast talking about you. Is there anything you can tell us that maybe he would have held back when uh, when when he was on? No, I have a little funny um, situation with Eddie. So we go, we get traded we get traded to Detroit, and just before then, that's that year before he got to know Cheryl, he got to take her out. Cheryl takes you guys know who yep. she is, right? Yes. Yeah, Cheryl yeah. Takes, supermodel, Sports Illustrated. And so he got to know her very well, and he really liked her. So now we're in Detroit. We get traded. The first first game back to New York, Manhattan, we, we, we play the game. We have a limousine waiting for me. Now, Stevie Eiserman's a rookie. I said, Steve, I'm going to take you out. We got a limo. After the game, it's Stevie Eiserman, myself, and Eddie Meal. And Eddie says um, – I want to call. He says, do you mind? I need, to, can we pull over and use the pay phone? Because he wants to call Cheryl Tiggs. So he gets out of the car and I said, Stevie, I said, watch this. So in the limo, there's a phone. So I got, I call Cheryl, right? I got her on the phone. I'm not telling her why I'm calling. I'm just talking, talking, talking. He's in the phone booth. We're watching him, right? And you can tell he's frustrated. He's frustrating. Then after two to five minutes, he's like, so he's coming back. I put the phone down. He comes back. He says, you know what? She's on the phone. It's busy. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, eventually, eventually I had to tell him and we did get Cheryl. And, uh, but those are little things that we would, the little pranks that we do on each other. But Eddie was a good sport. Eddie's always, he's, Eddie's a great guy. Good sport. 
And um, so we had a lot of fun together. He was a good guy for me to have by my side. Did you guys immediately hit it off when he when he made it uh, to to New York, or uh, or did that uh, take a little little bit of time? I mean, it seems like you guys have uh, uh, developed a relationship that lasts to this day. Uh, but was it immediate? Like, okay, lock eyes. This is us. We're going out together, regardless of what happens on the ice. We're we're, we're buddies. Or did that take some time to develop? Listen, you can always tell who's who, uh-huh. right? First, it starts with, "Are you single?" <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good step. And uh, do you like to um, drink? <laughs> Which I don't encourage. I don't encourage, but yeah, we did do some of that. And do you like to stay out at night and possibly get in trouble? Okay, you're coming with me. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know what, Eddie, more than that, too, or or as much as that, is Eddie's that kind of likable personality. I mean, look at, uh, you know, he, he played with Wayne, and he's best friends with Wayne, and Yes, yeah. man, is at yeah. wedding. And so that's the kind of character. He's got your back. You know you can trust him. Uh, and he's and he's not intimidated by you, so he's going to tell you what he thinks too. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. He'll he'll give it to me when I need it. Uh, the other thing that we did because we all lived in the city, myself, him, and Barry Beck. Mm-hmm. And so Eddie had the car. Barry and I decided we're not bringing cars to New York, so we left him. Eddie had his car, and every day we he would drive to. In fact, he wouldn't drive because. Barry was so big. You only had a small car. Barry was so big. He had to drive. Right. I had to sit in the front seat and Eddie be in the back seat in his own car. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of a nice guy he is. Yeah. That's oh, what a good guy. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously moving with you to, uh, to Detroit, uh, obviously you mentioned he wasn't too happy about making the move, but eventually you found your way over to LA. Was that kind of in hopes of, uh, of, of rekindling that, uh, that celebrity style LA, obviously being an enormous uh, city for that sort of thing. Did you find the same sort of success uh, going out and having fun on the town in LA or was, was that no. more of a flash in the pan in New York? No, no, I was very, very, very married and very oh, okay. faithful to my wife. So when I went to LA, it was strictly hockey and I was just trying to be the best player I could be because right. I ended up struggling a little bit. There's a part there where I, I was struggling a little bit. So uh, when I was in New York, I went back for a second time to New York. Espo brought me back. He told me, listen, when I take over the team, I'm going to bring you back. I was in Pittsburgh. I was actually playing with Mario a little bit. He right. says, I'm going to bring you back. And so he brought me back. And so... um and I knew I was getting towards the end of my career, and my wife was from Laguna Beach, California. Okay. And so I told Espoise, and I didn't, I can't remember who the coach was. He, Bergeron. Bergeron was a coach, and didn't really care for the guy, and he didn't care for me. And I told Espoise, I said, Espoise, if you get a chance to trade me to LA, can you please do it? Oh, wow. Because I want to end up, end my career in LA. Well, sure enough, within three weeks, <laughs> uh, they're looking, they're desperate for a def- defenseman. And Mark Hardy's available. Robbie Fatorik is coaching LA. Him and I were teammates. And um, and so Espo within three weeks made the trade. So next thing you know, I'm off to friggin' LA, which I didn't mind. It was a year before. That's the last year of the purple jersey. Right. Or the yellow jersey, however right. way you want to look at it. And so I was on that team. And then, um, you know, then that, that summer, Gretz gets traded there. So I got to play one season with Gretz. And Robbie Fatork was a coach. Mm. So, um, no, when I went there, it was strictly hockey. It wasn't – I mean, what I really enjoyed was Espo. When, when Gretz got there, was all the celebrities came out, right? Right, And they'd, right. End, they'd end up in the dressing room, like Stallone and John so Candy. So you're, you're with him again. Crazy, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Tom Hanks and all those guys. I remember Tom one time, he came to me, he says, uh, you know, I'm thinking about it. My wife wants to come in the dressing room. Would that be cool? <laughs> <laughs> i'm like half of us are undressed right he because he doesn't kind of know the protocol of sure. wives or no wives i said well i don't think that'd be a good idea tom <laughs> but i got i got to one met, of us might i got to meet yeah. so many characters um hollywood characters oh. movie stars and they, they were um, all attracted in la yeah yeah sure. yeah I want to talk a little bit just about the the end of your tenure uh, in in New York, and and I, I'm going to tie this into your your move back to New York uh, prior to to going to L.A. because there there there's a lot being spoken about about that final season uh, with Herb Brooks as coach. There's a a book called uh, Thin Ice: A Season in Hell with the New York Ranger Rangers by Larry Sloman. Have you have you had a chance to read that book? You know what? I didn't read it. I know Larry. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I'm not a big reader. I'll leave, I'll read articles, but I'm not a big reader. And the fact sure. is I lived it. So I didn't yes. need to read it. And I knew that there was, there was some stuff in there about me that, um, 
I didn't feel like it was harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, he Larry gave it to a few of the players, but um, no, I, I didn't read it. I didn't care to read it. I, I lived the lifestyle, so I didn't. I knew what I did. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think you know, there's probably a lot of speculation, especially with with you, the three person trade uh, with you, Eddie Mio, Eddie Johnston. I think was was the uh, the other person yes. going along in that trade, and yeah. uh, you know, maybe believing that that was was the crux of the quote unquote season of hell, which it seems can't be the case because you have someone like Esposito who is uh, a, a, a true class act, as you mentioned before, and everyone who's a fan of hockey knows it, bringing you back after the fact. You know, if, if the crux of the issue lied in your court, the Esposito as the as the general manager of, of, of the team would never have brought you back in the first place. Do you remain close like like with with all the players on the team? Was the locker room pretty close at that time? Uh, and, and is that still kind of one of the most iconic parts of your career? Yeah. Well, anything that's part of New York and, and being connected to the Ranger fan. Mm-hmm. And if you're winning, you're doing something special like that 79 season where we went to the finals. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's um, it, it helped me early in my career to know what it was like to be thinking, how do you win the Stanley Cup? You know, right. what does it take to go to the distance? Because we went the distance. A lot of it had to do with your relationship with your teammates, right? You're like brothers and you're competing and you're fighting for each other. Um, and you, you really care about each other. And a lot of that had to do with the coaching, of course, allowing us because we had uh, Freddie Shiro, but it had to do with the older players understanding and getting it. And then the younger players kind of understanding that, okay, we're going to have fun, but we're going to, as much as we can pick up the load on the ice, we're going to provide mm-hmm. that energy. So this whole dynamic of young and old getting and caring for each other, not being selfish. I learned all that in my, I guess would have been my second season, but yeah. the proper leadership in Phil Esposito, the way I, I saw him compete, how hard he played, how much he cared. We had Carol Vadney in that team. And then the young guys, you know, we kind of, uh, you know, we played hard. And so um, going back the second time wasn't the same thing for me. The one right. thing that made a big difference is funny how it makes a big difference Number 10 was not available. Oh. So Pierre LaRousse was there. And Pierre being a little older than me, you know, often, you know, a player will give up his jersey, right? Sure. But, you know, Pierre had established himself already as a number 10 goal scorer and a good player in the NHL. So it wasn't like I didn't, I didn't expect him to give up my jersey. And mm-hmm. I had to wear number 44. Like when I look at pictures of myself of that season with 44, it's like I don't even want to see it. Yeah. It's not yeah. even a good memory to me. Yeah. Right. So, um, no, my second time around, it wasn't that good. I wasn't, I had, it's funny how you lose some confidence. You sure. end up playing on the third line or fourth line. You're not getting power play time. And next thing you know, you get stuck. Mm-hmm. You know, you're working hard, but you're working hard. You're not nice and calm and relaxed. You're not playing with the better players. And so that's why I recognize that with players. It's hard to be able to maintain it. Yeah. I mean, it's maybe, maybe not so much the second time through, but your impact on New York is, is obviously felt, you know, we're coming in close to an hour on here, so we'll kind of wrap it up, but I'd like to sort of get those two pieces of, of hockey influence together with this question in, in the alumni game of the 2012 winter classic, there's kind of a famous moment where you had a breakaway against Bernie Perrant and you decided to kind of give him an easy save to, to, to let him make the save and, and not, you know, do a flashy move on him and score it. It kind of says a whole different story from when you first came into the league and you wanted you wanted to be the icon, you wanted to be seen, you wanted to be known, and now here you are, a whole career behind you, passing off that icon status to the person to whom maybe you feel uh, you know had, had put in some more years before or a level of seniority that that earned it. So from the time you came into the league and you're first thinking, I want to be noticed, I want to be seen, to this moment in the 2012 uh, uh, Winter Classic game, what has changed for you in terms of the concept of marketing and image and respect in, in the realm of hockey? Well, I said not a whole lot has changed. And let me tell mm-hmm. you about that goal. That's probably the goal that I've gotten more attention from a missed goal <laughs> and any goal that I've scored, sure, only sure. because the Flyer fans so disliked me. And after <laughs> they recognize, after they recognize what I did, as mm-hmm. I did on purpose, uh, which a lot of the fans couldn't see. There's forty four thousand people there, and and people up high couldn't tell. They just saw me as taking a shot, right? But all the players, the Flyer players, that were playing on the bench. They knew what I did from a distance. I shot, and I just threw it as pads. But yeah. I made it look like I was taking a shot. Right. And and I had that premonition in the afternoon that that was going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. 
Like it came to me, I said, oh, really? thinking, because Bernie's going to be in net. He's going to be in for five minutes. What do I do if I have a one-on-one breakaway? Just him and I, what do I do? Do I try to sure. score? It came to me. Wow. And I don't know if I had the answer by the time I went to the rink. Next thing you know, it's four minutes and 30 seconds to go. The defenseman fumbles the puck. I have a one-on-one on Bernie. Mm-hmm. And it was like I knew what I need to do. How do I do this to make it look like I'm taking a shot? So whatever came out of me, wow, I got so much um, – appreciation from that every single flyer that was in that game came to me at one point say ron that was a class act that was really cool on my way home that night i get a phone call it's eric lindros eric he says listen i just want to say that was a really cool thing you did not scoring on bernie so um for a missed goal oh and here's the other thing after the game mike keenan is coach right yeah mike wants to win this game he's our coach (laughs) mike (laughs) wants to win this game in a big way yeah. So we end up losing 3-1. So I'm the at the end of the game, I'm the last one to leave the dressing room. So is Mike. We're walking out and he's talking about the game. He says, you know, it would have been, you know, I really want to win that game. It would have been nice. And he goes, um, you know, Ron, if you had scored on that breakaway. <laughs> and he was completely serious. Completely serious. But then he said, I understand why you did what you did. But had you had scored. I swear to God, that's Mike Keenan. Like Mike, I'm surprised Keenan. I'm surprised he didn't make you run sprints after the game, even though it was an alumni game. For you know what though, and and Bernie has been on our podcast here. One of the most, the nicest guys you ever want to meet, and he's such a class act. Um, that that was such a nice thing to do. But sometimes, you know, you talk about that iconic status, and you want to be front and center. Well, by doing that move, by making that move. You ended up getting more attention than scoring a goal, so it worked in your favor anyway. And I, I like to think that uh, uh, you, as a 14-year-old, hearing Esposito uh, uh, show that class and, and respect, calling out the fans, and still uh, uh, committing to winning over in Russia, had that had you not heard that, I like the idea that maybe that goal would have been scored. You know, the influence that one great hockey player has on you as a 14-year-old translates all the way to 2012 from 1972 to 2012. Uh, yeah, 10 years prior to uh, to, to now, so the 40th anniversary of, of that series as well. Ron, thank you so much for joining us and for all the time. Uh, uh, you can find Ron at ronduguay 10 on Twitter. You can also listen to him up in the Blue Seats, the podcast uh, hosted by the New York Post as he brings Sarah into the uh, into the frame. Sarah, it's so <laughs> nice to meet you as well. Yeah, well, she likes to listen to me talk hockey because she's okay. a hockey mom. Her son played hockey, so yes. she was going to the ranks. She did all that, and um, and so that's why she like she's been listening to all this because she loves to hear it. She gets okay, tired of it. politics. So if you guys have any question for her right now, feel free. Go ahead. Oh, <laughs> oh no, yeah. we we have a we're following this young guy that's from Alaska. It's, um, his name's Roman James Marcotte. You can find him on YouTube. What a little talent he is. Yeah. He's 12 years old now. I'm kind of keeping my eye on him for the future. The great kids. I think Mario flew him down to Pittsburgh to meet his hero, Sidney Crosby, who's one of our exclusive uh, clients. So, um, it's, But they're playing up in Alaska, and uh, hopefully you'll see him come around. But uh, we know you're from there, and that's at beautiful. I was there once. Beautiful country. you got to get back. Yeah, well, you absolutely. don't remember we Scotty Gomez and Nate Thompson and some other guys who've done uh, there you go. who did very well. But um, yeah, the new kid coming up, we're excited about him also. Yeah, there's uh, a storied history there from Alaska. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's more wintry than Canada is, and we you know we try to we we almost kind of claim you as one of our own, even though we have no right to do that. We always kind of assume like Alaska that may as well be a part of us, right? Do you know what, guys? I want to get together with you at some point because I am going to follow up on. On a book, because I did Eddie Shack's book. We I have never published a book before, but Eddie came in prior to his uh, uh, untimely passing, and we put the he just had so many great stories like you. And I said, you got to get those down in a book. He said, well, let's make one. I said, I've never done it, but if you want to do it, I'll find a way. So we we published a book. Ken Reed from Sportsnet wrote it, and uh, it turned out it was a bestseller. And we just sold it out of the out of autograph signings and a few uh, bookstores that we got it in, and that's how popular it was. But I I understand the way you want to go with this. So there's something there. 
And then from there, we can turn it into Netflix. I'm going to follow up on all of this. We'll get our mutual friend, Mike McKenzie. We'll get together for a pop and we'll talk about it. As I mentioned, dog with a bone. Ron, anything else you want to uh, point people towards apart from the podcast up in the blue seats? No, I appreciate you mentioning that. And uh, um, you guys haven't asked me who I think is going to win the Stanley Cup. Hey, well, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're very uh, closely affin- affiliated with the Pittsburgh Penguins as well, but let's, let's hear it. Who do you think is going to win the cup? I don't know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> the right answer. The we right got answer. some mutual does. friends in New York city. So we're back and forth with the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Crosby's are pretty good, uh, close friends with us. So that's where my heart is. All I yeah, know is it's, no, uh, know. it's been a fantastic series so far. Yeah. Yeah, so Sarah did an interview this morning what had to do with uh, politics, but they asked her about hockey. And, of course, she said, you know, she's watching Sidney Crosby, and he's just phenomenal right now. Yeah, he's he's the – I mean, we've we've worked with Sidney. I signed him to an exclusive deal when he was 15 years old playing out of Ramouski, and we've been uh, very close ever since. His family and my family are very good friends now after all these years. And uh, I'll, I'll get down to Pittsburgh or New York to see a game, hopefully – uh, in the next week or so and uh, and then follow them right through the playoffs. It'll take away from my cottage time, but it's worth it. Yeah, thank absolutely. You well, thank much. you so much for joining us. Uh, for Ron Duguay, once again, for Brian Aaronworth, president of Frameworth Sports Marketing, myself, Mikey Aaronworth, host of the Sign Off Podcast. This is us signing off. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we made it to the end of yet another episode. Thanks again so much for joining us. You can find videos of all of our episodes on YouTube by searching the Sign Off Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Frameworth Sport or Instagram at Frameworth Sports. And hey, if you're not sick of me yet, you can find me on Twitter over at at Retrograde Mikey. Or you can always find me embarrassing myself over on Instagram at Aaronworth. The Sign Off is a proud product of Fadu Productions and Sad Styles Productions, executive producers Mikey Aaronworth and Andrew Bascom. Until next week, this is Mikey Aaronworth, signing off. Furnished by Sad Styles Productions. Get into it!